Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 21st episode of the Trojan Venture Podcast. It's another week, and we are back with another episode. And today, we're going to be venturing into a category that we haven't explored that much on this show, and that's the advertising and media space. I really have wanted to learn more about the advertising and media space and how the lessons learned in that industry can be applicable to the entrepreneurship and venture capital space. And I really think today's guest is going to help us accomplish that. So today I'm excited to welcome Ken Shapiro, a seasoned media and advertising executive with over 20 years of experience in the industry. Ken's most recent roles have included Chief Revenue Officer of The Morning Brew and Chief Revenue Officer of Fandom. Prior to his time at Fandom, Ken spent a decade at Turner Broadcasting Systems, spearheading the sales strategies for many well-known digital media destinations under Turner Digital's umbrella, such as CNN and NBA Digital. Ken started his career in the late 90s at CNN. He is a graduate of the University of Maryland, and funny enough, is also a graduate of Pascack Hills High School, which if you were a close friend of mine will know that I'm also alumni of Pascack Hills High School, and that's just an incredibly small world, but really, really excited to have Ken on the show today to hear all about his professional experience and his personal journey as well. So let's get him on. Hi, Ken. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Eric. I uh, really appreciate you having me. Really excited to dive into your career today and everything you've done in the media and entertainment industries. So I thought a good place to start would be to ask what initially kind of ignited your passion for both the media and entertainment industries? Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of, uh, you know, young uh, budding professionals, you know, you're not exactly 100% sure what you want to do when you're in that college space. You know, I kind of grew up playing a ton of different sports. I think I originally wanted to become a sports broadcaster, like like a lot of uh, like a lot of folks. But one of the things that I realized when uh, in the the sports broadcasting world, you're working a lot of nights and weekends. And so once I sort of uh, recognized that, uh, what kind of got me into media was recognizing. I will describe that the I'll say the overall consumption of media that people do. Uh, across everything, you know, whether it's uh, radio, print, podcasts, you know, social media, video, you know, traditional broadcast television, you know, cable television, streaming, all of that stuff, you know, the consumption's really high. And most people want to do that kind of during their leisure time. And so recognizing that they, it, during that time period, they're actually very focused and to be able to, I will describe, reach that audience when when, when it's sort of like during their downtime uh, creates, I will say, a lot of engagement. And so recognizing that media is uh, a passion for everybody. It could be across news, sports, entertainment, kids, and the consumption happens when you're so young. Uh, I recognize it was something that compared to my friends, you could actually see and touch it. And that was sort of like the most important thing. Like when my friends were going to Wall Street or selling insurance or whatever it might be, like it was sort of hard for me to visualize what exactly they were doing, where it was very easy for me young in my career to put, you know, say, hey, this commercial was sold and booked by myself. 
and then I actually see it running or seeing it uh, within the media. So to me, it was very tangible. And once I was able to see it, uh, it, it drew my passion to it. And it's something that sort of everybody knows. And that was really like a big thing. And if I'm correct, you started your career at CNN. Um, That's correct. Right before the 2000s uh, had just begun. And I think it would be obvious to everybody that the media and entertainment landscape has changed drastically since you started your career. I mean, it's about 25 years now. What would you say are some of the kind of the main differences in the industry that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, the main difference is, at least from my perspective, I, I, I feel like I'm dating myself, but, I'll, you know, I really started before the internet was really getting going. I think it was just starting to peak, you know, start in that late 90s, early 2000s. So what, ha- what the biggest change was really the internet generation coming on board. You know, you know, for me, starting at CNN, I learned, I will say, from the um, best in the business, uh, learning how to monetize an audience. But what was really interesting at, at CNN from when I started was sort of the power of live television. You know, I think as you've seen the change, most people are not tuning in to consume media day and date time specific. You're not necessarily watching, you know, a certain show at a certain time. You're doing it on your own time frame. But back in the late 90s, that's sort of how you had to do it. You watch certain shows at certain time, sort of before the DVR, you know, before clearly streaming. So to me, that was a massive change. But what still holds tried and true is the concept of live programming. And I think live programming, whether it's across, you know, CNN and unfortunately what, you know, has been going on in the Middle East uh, this weekend, you know, it still brings in a very powerful audience or live sports, like we were talking about earlier, a triple overtime game. So those, those two products, you know, are the product of being live is still really, really important. So that's sort of the big consistency. But then I would say that obviously the change is really the internet. And then the concept, in my opinion, of like big data. And when I say big data, it was used to wanted to reach, you know, a CNN audience, you know, someone that was watching CNN. Now you see a lot with big data. I want to reach somebody that's in market for a car. Those are two very different things because people consume so many different forms of media. So how do you reach that audience at the right place at the right time with the right insights? And so I think, you know, from my perspective, you know, that change of really buying a network versus buying an audience has been a real big change over the last 20 years across all these different mediums. And you actually had exposure to CNN even after leaving the company directly because you spent 10 years at Turner Digital. And this kind of starts, not your, I would, you could say your ascension, but your kind of career track on really trying to optimize revenue and sales channels for digital media destinations. And at Turner Digital, you were managing the sales cycles for CNN, NBA Digital, and other kind of brand name programs. So what were you, what were some of the lessons you learned about the best ways to generate high growth and consistent revenue cycles for these type of places? Yeah, I think at first, the the most important thing is understanding your own audience. When I say your own audience, it's 
it's the it's the brand or the product that you're selling. That could be CNN, that could be NBA Digital, and understanding what resonates with that audience. So, like, I'll describe. Uh, I'll use two different ones to be honest to to show kind of the the drastic difference. The first one being CNN. You know, there's a a very big church and state, as I would call it. You have edit your editorial side. You're not putting a Coca Cola can, you know, on an anchor's desk. You have to sort of keep those worlds very separate. But that audience, as I was saying earlier, is a live audience. It's a very affluent audience. They have disposable income. So when you think about that, they're, um, what type of products are you looking to go for that you're looking to reach? You're looking to reach probably more of a Mercedes owner versus a Honda owner. Doesn't mean they're not both there, but they're at a different point in their maturation from that perspective. So number one, as I said, first understand your audience and who that is, because you can't be all things to every people. Number two, you really need to understand what your, I will say, advertiser is looking to accomplish. So I think it's really um, important to understand how do you drive brand so that people understand the brand all the way down to demand where they are able to potentially execute and buy a product online. So really that I call it the full marketing funnel. So I think about those two things uh, together on the, the CNN, well, the digital side. Because what's really interesting on digital, you do have this call to action, very different from, I will describe the the television only side, you know, because in television only, yes, there, there might be some interactivity, but in general, you're consuming, you know, the media and the ads sort of simultaneously. But when you're on a social media, when you're on a website, where, wherever it might be, there's a lot more call to action. But you can't just say click here because if people don't know the brand, people don't understand what audience they're trying to reach. So, so from my perspective, like that was the way we were able to generate this high growth. The high growth is understanding your own audience and then be able to articulate that audience to the advertiser. And being able to say, you are you have a better brand lift, you've got better conversion, better awareness, you're getting people to go to a movie, or you're getting people to buy a car, or whatever it might be, or buy stocks. So they're really understanding your audience and what the objectives are of the advertiser that's looking to reach a similar audience. And you mentioned kind of the importance of CNN and finding what's the customer demographic that they're targeting. It made me think of Fox News, obviously, who has become very good at understanding what demographic they're targeting. But I guess my next question kind of falls along. How do you balance when you're looking to generate high revenue growth, right? Mm -hmm. But you're also trying to be, let's say, an objective news or entertainment station. How do you kind of balance that between saying, we want to only create content that is going to go right to what our audience wants to hear, and that might generate high revenue returns, versus also trying to keep an object objectivity on the bottom line. Yeah, so that's sort of like that's more I would describe on the editorial side. Mm. So you know, the we especially in a news space, the editorial does not, I will say, into intersect as much with, I will say, the advertising side. So you almost have to be upfront and honest about what your audience is delivering, but it wasn't 
the role of the revenue generator to be like, talk about this or talk about that. You really have to keep those two things separately. So I think it's really, you know, to un once you understand your audience, then you can then tailor who you want to target. And so I think under that those two things are really separated, especially in a new space. But when you get into like sort of like I'll describe the entertainment space that I was in or the sports space, you don't really see that as much. There, it's really not a challenge, but you really are able to talk about the uniqueness of uh, a certain property or a certain I will describe um, go to market strategy. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it yeah. does. It leads me right into my my next question. I want to now kind of look ahead because we just were looking in the past in your career. Yep. What would you say are two trends that you are currently following in the media and advertising space that sure. you are going to kind of pick up significant steam over the next five years? Yeah, this one, uh, I'm going to sort of jump on one that's pretty hot right now. Uh, and so I will describe kind of, I will say the dynamic of uh, AI generated content versus what I'm calling like authentic uh, generated content. So imagine Eric yourself, you know, somebody listens to your 20 plus pods that you have already done and decides that <clears throat> AI could do its own pod pretending to be Eric. <clears throat> Is that really authenticated? Well, they might have a, a fake Eric and a fake Ken, you know, doing a similar pod or saying things that really weren't us. So I think it's really, really important as we move forward from a media perspective to genuinely understand that I will say the AI will be able to generate so much content so much quicker, more efficiently, but it might not be authentic to the media owner. And we have to be able to separate those things because all content isn't the same just because they're able to do that doesn't mean it should be what's out there. So I'm keeping a really close eye on like, I'll say content generation from an automation standpoint. I'll say that is really, really big from my perspective. And yeah. would you, I guess that would kind of prompt my next question. Yeah. AI is here to stay. Um, 100%. What parts of the entertainment and media industry are going to, do you think will benefit most from AI versus the parts of the industry where there's going to have to be a lot of blockades put up in order to kind of save the authenticity that you were just kind of talking about? Yeah. I mean, listen, I think there's, I think the employees or the people in the media and entertainment industry can be more productive by using AI. I think this, you know, AI is not going to be able to write a full script for you, but can maybe get something going for you. They could produce, you know, portions of content. They could produce artwork. Uh, they could produce, uh, to me, it's about how do you work with it, not against it. To me, that is the real key. I think, you know, what something might've taken you six months to edit and do, you might be able to do it a lot quicker, you know, using AI. But I still think you will need to put your individual stamp on it. You know, and the individual could be a producer, could be an editor, could be uh, a designer, 
It could be whatever it might be. So to me, I think it needs to be embraced, but it has to be used to create create more content uh, and turn things around quicker. That's to me, I think that how they will work in unison together. And another thing I wanted to kind of get your perspective on, given the rise of TikTok and yep. short form video over the last couple of years, how do you think that short form video is going to continue to kind of impact the advertising space going forward? Oh, I think it is. It Number one, it's here to stay. I think it's this combination, sort of what I talked about earlier, live vid- plus short form. And then, and then I will then call like a third bucket like I'll sort of call it like destination programming that might not be live. That could be a movie that could be, you know, a certain series that gets hot. It could be a documentary. So I really look at it as three buckets. You have your live bucket that you're going to watch your sports on your news on maybe some of your award shows. Then you've got your short form video that you're like consuming, like, like on TikTok. you're scrolling through it at all times. You're getting bits and pieces but you have to remember, live is what you decide to watch. Short form video is very algorithmic driven. You know, you could kind of work the algorithm to be like, swipe faster if you don't want to see more content, double tap, like it if you want to see more of that content. And then there's like the destination programming, which is hard. But what you're seeing a lot right now, I'll say in the media world, is that the destination programming is really tied to previous like IP, meaning Barbie this past summer. Even Oppenheimer, brand new, but based upon a historical, you know, movie, you know, things of that sort. So I think those things, that's what's the hardest bucket, in my opinion. And because you're going to take bits and pieces of that and make it into short form so people understand it. And then live, I still think, is the crown jewel. And how would... There, because there's, I guess there's live video. We have it both on live TV, but now all the streaming services you see, like YouTube TV, they're yep. all also doing live video as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think that regular traditional cable is going to be in trouble going forward, given how much you think live TV will have an impact on the future? Yeah, I think cable television. I mean, I would be genuinely surprised if you actually sign up for a cable bundle at any point in your life you know you'll probably use your parents one if that's the one that you have a login for but i think it's really really important to to recognize youtube tv is a version of a cable bundle they're not very different it's just you don't have a box you don't need wires to come into your house it's just a different form whether that's youtube tv hulu you know roku whatever it might be so I still think there is that ability to have it there. But I mean, the streaming services, to me, what it does for the consumer, which is completely different, it gives you the ability to watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it, but not subscribe to it in perpetuity. You get to go in and out. You'd be like, listen, I'm going to do the Disney bundle this month. I'm going to do HBO Max. Then I'm going to do Netflix. And then, you know what? Wow, there's an unbelievable show on Paramount+. Plus. I need to watch Yellowstone. I'm going to watch it there, whatever it might be. So from my perspective, it, it gives more flexibility to the consumer, which is important. But it's not actually cheaper if you subscribe to all of them. I think it becomes the same price. 
So as a consumer, you need to think about this bigger traditional cable bundle versus what you consume, I will say, a la carte. And in your senior management positions, being a chief mm -hmm. revenue officer at Fandom in the morning, yep. group, you yep. had to kind of direct uh, many different sales professionals. And yep. as everybody says, the, the people are the key to the success. And so from your personal experience, what are the main keys to building out a great sales team? Yeah, I, th there's a lot. And I'm going to, the one that, that I tend to focus on sort of early on is that like, I think of it a lot like a team, you have to have a very diverse team. And when I say diverse, that could be in tenure, I mean, experience, um, expertise, uh, client knowledge, who they've called on, things of that sort. You can't build a team with all the same players. I sort of use a sports analogy again. They can't all be tall. They can't all be fast. They can't all be, you know, whatever it might be. So it's really about building this team and how they complement each other. And then treating each person on that team the way differently. You can't say everybody, you know what, run harder or, you know, more sales calls, more, you know, more emails, whatever it might be. You have to understand what motivates them. Some people motivate might all just be about the money. You could call me sales assistant for the rest of my life, as long as I make a lot of money. Some people might want the title. The title is the most important thing to them. Some of them might want recognition via in a meeting or, you know, want to have the biggest accounts. So understanding each individual seller, what their strengths and weaknesses are, how do they complement themselves, complement each other as a team, and then find out what motivates them. You know, I think that's really, really important. If you could put those three things together, you know, then it's then it's about execution. I do think of it like coaching. How do you bring the right people on the field or the, you know, in the conference room together to deliver the best product possible and really focus more importantly on our customers? You know, you can't it can't be all about the media itself. Those customers have to sell something, have to drive brand awareness somewhere. And you can't all be, it has to be in service to them. And I think like, from my perspective, it's like recognizing that advertising works. People might like hate it and I don't want to see it or, you know, gosh, I have to sit through this ad or this banner or this button or this commercial. Why can't I skip it? But it resonates. And that's what's the most important thing is that, you need to know it does work. And that's what that's where I that's what makes me love this business more than anything. Subconsciously, we are making decisions based upon, you know, advertisements we've seen throughout our day. And when you say advertising works, it makes me think of the Hulu has live sports kind of commercial and that they're of course. Kind of totally embracing the idea that <clears throat> we know advertising seems annoying but it really does work in driving revenue and driving interest. So really right to your point. Yep. Um, and so for a last question, a lot of the people that are listening to this are college students that are still yeah. looking to figure out what they want to do with their career. So what would be one piece of advice you would actually give to your 22-year-old self? So I've got like a handful. So the first thing that actually came to mind I'm going to give you two of them that I think like 
remember your work world. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It doesn't matter if you've got a job at 22 or 24, whether you get promoted at 23 or 27, it's, it's, it's the long haul. And remember that it's really, really hard because one of your friends gets a raise or gets a better apartment or gets a nicer car. You tend to compare yourself to your peer set and you got to think about the long haul and creating the relationships at a young age, because those people will grow with you. And make sure you find like the mentors as well. I think it's a combination of the peers that succeed and the people that can help you throughout that, which is super, super important. And then the thing I like to tell people because it'll challenge you every day. And this could go to any job, but it's really like your end of the day, it's five o'clock, six o'clock, whatever it is. And I would say this to you, say this to anybody. When you're done with your day, what did you do today that somebody didn't ask you to do? And it's really, really because you might have homework, you might have 50 emails, you might have 20 Slack messages, you might, so you did everything, your checklist is done, you leave a couple things for tomorrow, and you're like, sweet, I crushed it today. And you'd be like, but did you do anything that nobody asked you to do? And that is the way you're going to get ahead. That is the way you're going to get promoted because if you're doing your job, you're going to get a pat on the back and you're going to get your salary every two weeks. You're going to get your benefits. You're going to get all that. But to really move up and to understand, you have to be doing things people don't ask you to do. And sometimes it's really hard every day. Like, what did I do? It's like, it's easy to work out if you if your trainer's there. What are you doing if you don't have a trainer? Got to work out on your own. And you really have to think about that each day for the business. What did you research? What did, you know, what, what average, what, did, what competitors were you looking at? So really tend to really challenge yourself at the end of the day. What did I do today that I nobody asked me to do? And if you do that each day, you're going to be able to challenge yourself and be able to get ahead beyond just doing your daily job. So a follow-up question to that. Yeah. People will say, you know what? do go the extra mile, do something that other people won't be doing. I think where a lot of people might get trapped is, mm -hmm. okay, where do I actually put that energy though, right? What do I identify as the best way to do that? So what would be your advice in terms of identifying what's the best place I can add value for the organization I'm in? Because you don't want to obviously just be running a thousand miles an hour just to be yeah. running a thousand miles an hour. So how would you say generically is the best way to find the place where you can go the extra mile? This is going to be a little bit cliche, but you if you're at a bigger company, there's probably multiple different divisions and different departments and things of that sort. Find your passion. You might not see it on day one of your work, work world, but within three, four, five, six months, whatever it might be, you'll, you'll gravitate to something, you know, I gravitated to sales. Did I want to be, you know, uh, a, an, a, a program operator where I was just sending orders down. I was like, yeah, I could do this for a year and a half, but I want this job like two steps ahead. So being able to see where you want to go and, and because it's your passion, my passion became like, not selling, but advertising. As I said earlier, advertising works, 
So to me, that was my passion because I saw it everywhere. I know it resonated. How do I get the right message in front of the right person at the right time? So to me, it's uh, to answer your question, it's sort of a long-winded answer, find the passion point when you are in the role because most likely you're going to come in at some sort of entry level and you're going to be like, I know I don't want to do this the rest of my life, but I mean, I knew I didn't want to send orders down to Atlanta at CNN, but I knew what I wanted to do because I saw, you know, the senior person doing it. And so then I crafted sort of what I did today to try to get to that level. It could have been just like asking somebody to have breakfast, could I have a coffee with you. Like you reaching out to me via LinkedIn. Hey, you might be a great for a pod. Nobody asked you to do that. I mean, you're doing it, you're sort of doing it naturally. Maybe, maybe they don't respond, but you don't care. But you asked, we went to the same high school, a little, little time apart. But to me, I mean, that you're sort of doing it naturally right now. But it's understanding if you want to have your own show or create your own content. You, you're like, again, you're a good example of how you're doing something that nobody's asking you to do. And you're going to be able to have this. So, well, I appreciate that. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. I know your, your insights will be really valuable for other kids that are figuring out what they want to do, whether that's an advertising <clears throat> or in general. So yep. I really want to thank you again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye. So I want to thank Ken again for taking the time today to speak with us. It was really great to kind of dive into these industries that we haven't explored that much on this podcast and to hear a perspective from somebody who has kind of been at the senior level at a lot of different cool places was really, really valuable. And before we wrap up, I just I had two thoughts um, or kind of insights from what he said. One, when he was answering the question about the differences in the media and advertising world from 20 years ago till now, I was struck by his answer in that he said, now you're buying a network versus you used to be buying an audience. And I think that goes for so much of how content creation is now compared to how it had been even five years ago. So I thought that was a really insightful point. And then the second one was his emphasis on always doing something um, that you're not being asked to do and really having that self-motivation. I think that's something that can be applicable to people at all stages of life, but especially young people like myself. And so that was really great to hear from as well. So again, really hope you guys all enjoyed this one and we will be back in two weeks with another episode with another great guest. So stay tuned.